This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for cancer patients. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, November 13th, entrepreneur and philanthropist Sean Parker, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, and famed oncologists Ned Sharpless, Douglas Lowey, and Zeke Emanuel discussed advances in cancer detection and treatment at the Washington Post's third annual Chasing Cancer Summit. In this segment, leaders in health policy examine the financial burdens facing cancer patients and their caregivers and discuss ways to reduce the demanding costs. Let's listen. Well, good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. I'm a health policy reporter here at the Washington Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And I'd like to introduce my guests. I have Dr. Zeke Emanuel, who's vice provost for global initiatives and chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I have Jennifer Bryant, senior vice president for policy and research at Pharma and Dr. Peter Bach, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Can Cancer Center. Thanks all for being here. I'm looking, looking forward to this lively, what I'm sure will be a lively discussion. Uh, if you have questions for our guests, you can tweet them to me using the hashtag postlive, and I will relay them during our conversation. I want to start talking uh, about the patient experience because I, I'm sure most in the audience have known someone with cancer who have struggled to, to, to pay the bills. Um, you know, I know that treatments are expensive, but when I actually started looking at how the cost has grown over the last decade, it kind of blew my mind. Uh, the average cost for a month of treatment for a cancer patient has risen to around $15,000, as, as I'm sure you all know, from around $7,000 a decade ago. Baseline question, does it cost too much to treat cancer in the U.S.? Yes. I mean, it's just that simple. It's uh, extremely expensive, and I'll just relay an anecdote. Uh, one of my mentors for my Ph.D. got prostate cancer, and uh, he eventually got on Zytiga. Uh, and when the doctor was telling him, you know, want to put you on this uh, medication, um, and so he asked, well, what are the side effects? What, what can I expect? He said, well, pretty minimal side effects, uh, except uh, financial. Uh, can you afford $2,500 a month? Um, so the price, introduced price was uh, over 12000 I think, a month. Uh, you could find it by shopping on GoodRx or something for around 10000 which is $120,000 a year. And, you know, with most insurance, it's uh, about, uh, the co-pays about twenty-five. dollars it's a co-insurance, about 25% of that, so around $2,500. He got it and eventually got it for less. But that is a huge amount of money. You know, that's $30,000 a year. And I'd just like to put it in context for the audience. We often forget that the median income in America, half the families per household, half the families are under 61000 half above 61000 So when a single drug for cancer basically costs half the median income for American households, Cancer care is too expensive. Ms. Bryan, I'd like to hear you on this. So I've put it in context in a, in a different way. I, I think there is no question, I just start off by saying, there's no question that for patients, uh, we do need to wor worry about cost sharing. I think cost sharing, especially for oncology, is out of control, and we do need to 
um, both make it more predictable and more manageable. And it's really a scandal. I think we would actually all agree that there isn't an annual out-of-pocket cap for patients on Medicare. Um, and traditional Medicare without that, it, it's, it's a challenge for patients. That said, actually, to listen to the kind of numbers you're using, Zeke, I think is, is a little bit misleading, right? Because the fact is most patients do have insurance of some kind. We did. And, this was an insured well, patient. But insur insurance, thank goodness, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, there actually is an annual out-of-pocket cap on patient spending. So patient spending is capped at around $7,000 per year. So a patient with insurance isn't going to pay $2,500 per month. And the reality is that if you look at, um, if you use those numbers, people will assume that cancer is the single thing driving up U.S. healthcare costs, and that in particular drugs are the single thing driving up U.S. healthcare costs. And of course, cancer medicines are about one penny out of every dollar we spend in the U.S. And I would say, find me another penny that has produced as many remarkable advances in care as we've been talking about this morning. I, I, well, well, wait. Oh, I don't know. Every penny we spend on smoking cessation probably yields about 40 times the benefit. But the, it's difficult to know if we spend too much. We clearly direct more money towards treating life-threatening illnesses than we do to other things in terms of the benefits. And you can look at it from a relative proportion. The, what you get for your money from cancer medicines is declining. So over the last 25 years or so, the cost per life year gains, which is dictated by the price of the drug and how well it works, has gone up about five or six fold. So whatever we were getting a few years ago, it's getting to be a less and less good deal. It's true what Jenny says, there's out-of-pocket caps, not in Medicare, as you noted. But uh, the U.S. compared to other OECD countries has six times, or actually the odds are six times as high, that people have cost-related non-adherence for medications in the U.S. compared to other countries. But I, I would also say, you know, take this ITGA example, right? What you get for $120,000 is four added months. You're not getting a cure for metastatic prostate cancer. You're getting, on average, four extra months. That doesn't seem, you know, worth that much, uh, I would argue, and uh, I think it's also the case that, again, uh, even if there is a cap on private insurance, we're all paying for those exorbitant bills. So an individual, right, might have a cap of 7000 in private insurance, but no cap in Medicare. Uh, but remember, the premiums end up going up uh, a lot uh, because someone's paying for it, and that's the insurance company, and we're paying the insurance company. We pay both through our premiums, and we pay through taxes for Medicare and Medicaid. Well, then, can I just ask, what, what then is, is a reasonable something, a reasonable sum to expect a cancer patient to pay out of pocket? Because, of course, as you know, the ACA, uh, you know, said 8 or 9% is what a family should be expected to pay in premiums. But is there a way to, to evaluate how much is reasonable to ask, like, a cancer patient fighting for their life to pay for their medications? Well, I'll give you a, a philosophical answer. I think that cost sharing should be used to drive care to the most appropriate care for that patient. So uh, in the old days when we had an, a formulary with three tiers, the rationale that was used was that you should put the most appropriate lowest cost um, um, alternative for that patient on the lowest tier and higher cost things that might have an alternative that was lower cost, you could put on the highest tier. But the question is, what are we doing now with oncology? We find that a large number of Medicare plans are putting every drug in a particular oncology class on the highest tier. That just feels like, to me, punishment and not actually directing care where it should go. So I think there's a real problem 
um, when we use cost sharing to shift cost from, uh, from sick patients to healthy patients. And I, you see that trend in a number of ways in our current insurance market. Dr. Jen, yeah, no, Jenny and I are going to agree on this. My starting point would be zero dollars. So the problem is, or the reason we have high out-of-pocket, high coinsurance, is two things. One is, it is a counter to exorbitant prices, and that is how insurers, that's the leverage they use. So if we had appropriate pricing based on how well drugs worked, for instance, we could actually have very low co-pays. The other reason is to deal with other kind of market imperfections that other countries don't have to wrangle with, like care is, you know, an x-ray one place is five times as expensive as the x-ray across the street. But the starting point should be, this is insurance for an unpredictable event that's catastrophic on multiple dimensions. The last thing we should do is stick people with bills that then ruin them financially on top of it. Not that we're wealthiest country in the world, at least but we were. I, I really think it's important not, I mean, patients' out-of-pocket expenses are really important. But the total cost of the system is also really important. We pay for that total cost. And again, just look at Medicare. Over the last five years, the proportion of Medicare dollars going to drugs has gone from 17% of Medicare spend to 23% of Medicare spend. Medicare's done actually a remarkably good job at bringing down the per person costs and for almost everything except for medications. Um, and we also, you know, the projections over the future and is, you know, for on average, it's going to be 6.5% increase in drugs except for cancer and anti-inflammatory drugs that, you know, treat things like Crohn's disease or multiple sclerosis, those are going up 20%. Right. So we're, cancer is getting hit particularly hard because the, every new drug being introduced starts out at 120,000. And now we have, you know, CAR-T at 373,000 per patient. And I, I, okay. I want to actually ask Dr. Bach uh, on, that, on that issue of the overall price of drugs. Um, I know that you've written quite a lot about uh, what's known as a solve for price approach. Can you explain how that would work and the promise you see in that? Oh, sure. So you have to first concede or accept that the market isn't working in terms of finding appropriate prices for drugs for all the reasons we're talking about. To try and manage prices, we have very high out-of-pockets. Then we have problems with access and financial ruin as a consequence. We actually have very low access to therapies in the U.S. compared to other countries also. And so the theory is the market's not going to solve the social objective we are aiming for. And so we should f essentially fix prices or set prices or set ceiling prices for drugs based on how well they work. Take data about their efficacy, take data about their toxicity, figure out how you want to skew those incentives to treat, for example, rare diseases rather than pop or large population health problems, and go ahead and calculate what prices should be so that innovative companies know what they're going to get based on how successful they are. And under that kind of model, it's called value-based pricing here in the U.S., uh, under that kind of model, you could actually have low copayments because that, like I mentioned, the primary purpose of high coinsurance is to use as leverage to get lower prices from pharmaceutical companies and also to deter use of the very drugs that we are all paying in to have created. Can, can I just yeah. say I think that um, it's a defeatist attitude to say that health plans can only manage costs through cost sharing. That's not how we've managed costs in the past for hospital care. It's not how we manage costs for heart transplants. It's not how we should manage costs for oncology. The reality is that there's a lot that um, plans can do. They aren't actually helpless victims here. And they can and do contract for first-line therapies. They're using um, 
preferred clinical pathways, and the market, they're using all kinds of bundled payment, and the market for cancer medicines is actually changing rapidly along with the science. So I would argue that the market is working and is going to work better and better, and that some of the you know, mantra that the market can't work in oncology is kind of based on a 1990s model when there were fewer therapies, fewer ability to, um, to substitute one for another, and that uh, we are gonna see a lot of change here. And just to one point that Zeke made earlier, uh, and I think this is sort of something Peter has said too, is that, well, the new medicines aren't really worth it. They're not adding so much in the way of um, new value. I think cancer patients would really disagree and that we've seen really remarkable advances. But I also think you can't have it both ways. The implicit, uh, argument here is that somehow we should only pay for the drugs that are really huge breakthroughs and we shouldn't pay for any of the ones that provide minor um, and incremental advances. The reality is we learn from all of the drugs, including those that provide incremental advances, and it's the competition from, all, from having multiple sources of therapy that drives price competition. So, it, well, you know, I, wait, I think look, look. you can't. <laughs> uh, can, I, can I make eight small let, points here? Uh, <laughs> let, let me just say one of the effects of having super high prices on cancer drugs is we have a huge amount of research in cancer. Good thing. Good thing. I'm an oncologist. I want to cure cancer. But we have about 650 drugs in clinical trials now in cancer. In CAR-T, because we're paying so much, we have 400, 500 different trials on CAR-T to cure. Guess what? Antibiotics are really important. We've got a lot of antibiotic-resistant drugs out there. We don't pay a lot for antibiotics. You know, maybe a course of antibiotics for the most expensive one is about five or $6,000, substantially lower than 120000 guess how many antibiotics we have under research, right? Less than 50, okay? We're not researching the most health important drugs out there precisely because of this skew in prices. And I would say that if you look back over the last 30 years, the actual most effective way of controlling healthcare costs has been to change how we pay for things and price control. We moved to DRGs for hospitals, had a remarkable effect, improved efficiency, brought down prices, we're going to get some price controls in drugs unless the pharmaceutical companies voluntarily do something because the prices are just becoming intolerable. The public's been saying that pretty clearly. Well, that's a great segue into talking about HHS's recent announcement that they're going to be experimenting with Part B Medicare drugs in pegging those payments, of course, to this international index. And I'd love to hear thoughts from both the doctors and from Ms. Bryan on that. But I guess, first of all, um, you know, this is, is obviously limited in scope. Um, how much do you think this could do to move the needle, not just, not just for what Medicare pays, but also then having ripple effects in commercial insurance? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually quite an interesting proposal, and I just want to, Jenny made a lot of points, but I just want to point out that being called a defeatist, I consider a compliment. <laughs> so the, the, so the, this, the new president's proposal has three components. The first is they want to get away from this system that is uh, ancient at this point of paying doctors and hospitals back the cost of a drug plus a percentage markup. This comes from the old days of cost plus reimbursement, which is how we pay the DRG system that Zeke just mentioned. 
but it was seized upon by the pharmaceutical industry as a way to drive incentives to prescribe more expensive drugs, and prices started to rise. So this administration, the prior administration, the administration before that have all taken this on in different ways, and this administration has taken it on as, fine, no more percentage-based markup, flat fee only. The next thing they did is they want to focus just on the super expensive Part B drugs. These are the drugs that doctors and hospitals infuse in their offices under supervision. And they want to pull the ownership away from these facilities and instead distribute them through a vendor without the doctors and officers, uh, sorry, doctors and hospitals ever taking ownership or financial risk of those drugs. That is a good idea. That was an idea from 2003. Again, something the Obama administration looked at seriously and tried to re-implement. And the last is... They want an experiment in part of the country with reimbursing these entities that are going to buy these expensive drugs based not on what the companies want to charge. Right now, they just pay what's called average sales price, which is the reported sales price of the companies that they set, but instead a blend over time of a basket of what other European countries charge. And it's a, you know, they'll use some sort of averaging. I'm sure this will be modified over time. But the essential idea is to ironically, freeload off of other countries' ability to be serious negotiators when we cannot. It is, of course, packaged as ending global freeloading. I guess it is. It's just the arrow points in the other direction. <clears throat> well, there, there's a lot there, and the model is really complicated. I'd say that the piece of it that is of the most uh, serious concern, uh, I think, is that it targets a very large price uh, reduction. They're trying to get like a 30% reduction in spending. And like I would just say, common sense says if you think you can take 30% out of anything without having some major market consequences or patient access reduction, I'd say think again. But it's trying to target that on this very small slice of um, medicines that serve the most fragile patients. And we do think that we'll have really negative consequences for patients in this country right away, and then longer run, we think that it could have very serious global consequences because what we're really doing, if you try to, in an arbitrary way, pull in price controls from places like Greece and the Czech Republic, what we're really doing is saying that we don't want the same rate of progress in innovation and cancer that we've had oh. over the last you know, decade that we become really accustomed to. I, I Can we footnote I, price controls as negotiation that pharma doesn't like? Because yeah. that's what's happening in these well, other so countries. I, They're I not actually, mandatory. Sorry, first, I, I do have one question I want to ask Ms. I'm sorry, Green, okay. and that, that is just, um, when, when Secretary Azar rolled this out last month, I think it did surprise many folks that he was being this aggressive. But the argument he, he made to us is he said, you know, pharma's going to push back on this, but when you look at the actual savings achieved, it's less than 1% of what pharma spends on R&D. And I want to hear your response to that, because I'm hearing that objection a lot from pharma. Yeah, I've, I've challenged that math directly. I would say... That, um, that math sort of looks at it just as an experiment, doesn't look at it if it's expanded. They're, they're going to experiment with 50% of the country, by the way, which is not I, tiny. I thought I said that. I then, then ramp it up, you know, fully. And um, it also looks at all R&D across all medicines and doesn't recognize that what this is going to do is just immediately, like a laser, focus on... Um, R&D in oncology and in and these physician-infused medicines. So is there a lot at stake? Absolutely there's a lot at stake. This is not, um, you know, there's no free lunch here. There are 1,100 medicines in development for oncology. 
not all of them. in human trials, so I think, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, it's 1,100. There's, there's a lot. I mean, some of that includes basic yeah. trials, right? So right, right. Um, not all in late stage. But a lot of those trials will not go forward if it seems clear that the reimbursement is going to change and be completely unproductive. So, you look, know, l l let me make just three uh, <coughs> points, hopefully uh, uh, somewhat relevant. Um, this notion that, you know, the amount of money we get from exorbitant prices is necessary for research is simply untrue. And I'll give you two important pieces of data. Pharma uh, will say, ah, it's $2.4 billion to develop a drug, $2.5, $2.6 billion. Um, the, we can't verify that number. No transparency on that number. It's simply a number cooked up by Tufts based upon data that no one else can look at. When you look, and there's a paper published in JAMA Internal Medicine in uh, 2017, you look at 10 cancer drugs by companies that are developing cancer drugs, they came out with a number of 650 to 750 million dollars, and only two of the drugs cost more than a billion dollars to develop. So that's the first point. Second point, uh, top 10 drug companies are making 25% profit, more profit than any other sector. There's plenty, plenty of money they could reallocate. Second point, you can't have it both ways, Jenny. Cancer is 1%, one cent out of a dollar, but if we reduce the price, we couldn't possibly re Either it's a small amount or it's a big amount, and you can't have it both ways. That, oh, it's a huge amount if the, we switch 30% spending. Um, and uh, I would say the last point is, on a per-person basis, the United States is spending $1,445 on drugs per person in the country. The next highest country is Switzerland, which has two of the largest drug research companies in the world, Roche and Novartis, headquartered right there in Basel, right? They pay $939. Germany, England, which has very good medicine, just like us, they're down in the $500, $600 per person range. We could take 30% out of what we spend on drugs, and the world wouldn't collapse, okay? It is possible. Every European country shows it's possible. We do, will have a change in priorities. Is it a bad thing to have a change of priority? So we're not doing research on drugs that expand, extend life two months. We are doing research on things that are home runs. We only have a few more minutes, so I know you want to respond, and I know you had some. I, I would just say, first of all, I will have it both ways in the sense that one penny <laughs> out, of, out of total. I'm glad Barbara will admit they're going to have it both ways. Out of total U.S. healthcare spending, one penny on cancer medicines, right? And this cut is targeted to that penny, so it's going to cut it 30% just for the cancer, essentially. No, it's like, not only right. I just cancer, have to... Physician infused. But, but I think the point is we can, of course, pay what Greece pays or the Czech Republic pays for medicines, but then we cannot expect that we don't have some consequences. In Greece, about 8% of the medicines that were introduced but since 2011 are available. That basket includes the in, UK, Sweden, in France. 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 Not so much better, actually. There's an average delay of almost two years for cancer patients, which for a cancer patient is essentially a life sentence. No, of course. Oh, and so I, I, I don't know if Vertex is remember, but Vertex pulled out of France because the, you know, they refused to concede oh, to the French health economic you know, studies of their CF drugs, which are expensive and weak. Uh, and in fact, they closed down all their French clinical trials. So you're absolutely right. Some of these countries lose access because of profit-seeking. Um, I do want to defend Jenny's uh, having it both ways. 
Uh, Zeke was in the last administration, I was in the Bush administration, and both of us know this Washington axiom, which is you can say two things that are internally contradictory as long as you insert a sentence between them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say one other thing. What is interesting, I don't think, I don't think the Trump-Azar proposal is actually going to come. But what it says is, I think, very important, which is it was released 10 days before the election. They were feeling a lot of heat that they were not doing anything on drugs, despite the president running on the promise to do something about drugs. And so they had to do something radical to try to regain the public's trust that they were actually going to do something. And in Washington, as we all know, things take on a life of their own once they're out in public. And I think what this says is drug pricing is on the agenda, both for Dems and Republicans. And I do think something is going to happen. What that shape and size is will be hard to know today. But the Dems are proposing, you know, negotiations, Medicare negotiations. I hope they expand to national negotiations. The Republicans are proposing price controls based on an international price index. Um, I think there's plenty of room between those two to actually come to some coherent policy on drug prices. And my own personal view is that the next election, this is going to be a big deal if drug prices keep going up. Affordability is going to be the topic, uh, the health care topic of the 2020 election. And center in that is going to be drug affordability. And I do think that will lead to some action. Well, I think we could stay here and discuss this until the 2020 election. That's all <laughs> We're happy to do that, by the way. <laughs> that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for being here for this Thank terrific, you. terrific conversation. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.